Hi there, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Rutschkowski, your host today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk with the thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. Today, very happy to be speaking with Danny Collis. He is the owner and principal of the Collis Group based in Canada, and we're going to learn a lot more about what Danny does, but just for our audience to understand a bit, Danny's company essentially is providing the, the infrastructure that restaurants and other food prep organizations use to produce lots of delicious food. In other words, stoves, all these types of things that we'll learn more about, but welcome to the program, Danny. Thanks, Chris. Uh, nice to be here with you. Hope that was an open discussion. <laughs> you know, we've got you in a warm, sunny Florida today, so thanks for joining. You've escaped a little bit from the cold north where some of the rest of us are in, in Canada. You know, before we dive into you know, your company and your um, activities in the food space, and tell us a bit about your history and what brought you into being an owner and leader in the Collis Group. Uh, sure. I started, I uh, uh, hate to admit the years, but I started in 84, 1984, uh, uh, just working a summer job with uh, Garland Commercial Ranges, a big, big range manufacturer in North America. And um, I worked with them for 10 years and I saw a, lot, I saw a, a bit of a niche for maybe someone a bit younger to come into the industry at that point and uh, took advantage of leaving Garland, worked in a couple of other segments still in the food service area with different manufacturers, rep type people. And uh, I quickly realized that I thought I could do it on my own or give it a shot at least of going out on my own, which is never easy. Uh, the one thing when I started is no one, uh, because we're a commission-based company, no one told me that you uh, didn't get paid until the factories got paid. And right. stuff that I first started with was very long-term as far as a a pay cycle. So it was a, a very, very hard learning curve in the first year of my business. It was almost mm. unsurvivable. It's a really interesting part of the entire food business. And, you know, it's something that you know, a lot of people, frankly, don't think about unless you're the business owner or the, the chef and the prep team actually delivering delicious food. But so before we kind of dive into the intricacies of this business and what it means for the food space, tell us maybe a bit more, what are the types of products that Collis Group is providing to the food sector? Sure. So we're a manufacturer's representative group, currently wrap about 14 or 15 different product lines from mostly North America, but one of our biggest product lines is a line of food processors from France uh, through the United States of America called RoboCoop. Uh, RoboCoop is a brand name. Uh, we sell anything from a, I always say, from a thermometer to a toaster to ventilation hoods to refrigeration. So we call on a, our, our distribution network of food service dealers who sell our product for us. We are also very strong on the food service consulting, uh, a bit by food service consultants. And uh, like I said, we have, a, we have an array of products, um, food processors. Uh, so that's a big product line for us. We've just bought a new company where we're a distributor now for filters for uh, frying. There's the cost of oil has gone through the roof and we have um, filter pads to uh, save a lot of money for end users. So we're, we yeah. find ourselves to be a solution company we're very fortunate that a lot of the goods that we sell are uh, labor saving products so it's that old soup to nuts uh, type of deal with our product line frequent viewers of future foodcast come here to hear about uh, trends in sustainability and technology in the food space and i can see them scratching their head well, why are we talking to the Collis group today 
And, and again, I think people don't realize that groups like, you know, companies like yours providing core infrastructure are oftentimes bellwethers, leader in leading indicators of what's really going on in a sector. Before any food product gets to market, your company has been in place providing the infrastructure for the people producing those food products. So in fact, you're rather far upstream of the indicators that an average consumer might see in this space. So I'm excited to have you here because of those reasons. And um, we're going to talk about a lot of things here that these product lines that you're developing and the services that you're providing, how are they really showing the future of what's happening in the food sector? And that spans, you know, how people are managing sustainability in their kitchens, workforces, all sorts of things. So it's going to be a good discussion here today. So as we think about this, you've been in this space for a few decades. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen change over that time in terms of how the infrastructure that you're providing is really showing what consumers today are experiencing. Let's start within restaurants, but I know you do work um, outside of restaurants as well. Yeah, well, I, I, the, I think the biggest change is, uh, you know, COVID's really changed um, our industry has obviously been decimated and there's no other um, indicator to me uh, uh, than our food processor line, for example. Mm. Uh, we've always had a very successful run with food processors, um, but what, you know, in a COVID year, when you expect sales to be down, our sales went up in food processors, and I attribute that to labor. So we've seen a dramatic shift in a labor pool yeah, boy, you can go back to grassroots. Chefs come out of school today to go work in restaurants and uh, they learn how to cut product. They learn how to do all their different chopping skills. And it is a skill. Uh, you know, a chef learns how to go for a, uh, a carrot. Uh, we have machines that do that now. Um, so are we taking from a skill set that uh, was it has been in place for 100 years, maybe a little bit? There's a dynamic shift towards being able to do things a little bit faster with less labor. To me, it's a very dramatic paradigm shift. You know, I'm, I've had, I had a uh, recent conversation with a food service consultant and, you know, I think the, the general thought process, I thought, oh yeah, there's a lot of people that are staying home because they're being paid to stay home. But I think what's happened in, in part of this shift is that people have realized that as a young kid, sometimes working in a restaurant isn't that much fun. Mm. Scrubbing dishes, things in a dish pit. And uh, this consultant who actually owns his own restaurant created different compensation packages to make sure his people were happy where they were. So the more sales that were made, the more financial status his staff made, but he is a big consultant on processes. The old theory of getting into a restaurant is that you have a great recipe, so let's open up a restaurant, throw some money at it. And it's just so much more detailed. It's food costs, labor costs, everything, energy costs in your uh, building. What we've seen over the years, and I'll go back to another line that we represent, Spring Air, uh, we created technology hoods going back 20 years ago to help people save on uh, energy because we understand mm -hmm. budgets dope up a restaurant, but their operational costs are what will put them under, under sometimes if they're over, but operationally, if they're not sustainable, they're going to mm -hmm. be put out of business. Well, yeah, let's dive in further on what we might think of these environmental factors of energy and recycling and upcycling that we, we hear a lot about that you're probably involved with. But um, you mentioned certainly the, the staffing side, that's been a huge issue over the last couple of years. And it's really been a rapidly evolving issue over the last decade or more with, you know, what 
the newer generations are looking for in their their life satisfaction and how that reflects in what in the work that they do, but also the costs of that. And it, it sounds like again you're upstream of some of these you know human sustainability activities, and you're seeing it sounds like an up, uptick in implementing essentially roboticization, if you will of automation of food processes. And we saw that and we see that a lot in the manufacturing space over the last several decades. And at the end of the day, food production is somewhat of a manufacturing activity. So do you see more of this automation coming into the food space in terms of restaurants, you know, maybe more of the commercial kitchens that are producing food for large groups? I do. Um, I, you know, you can, we don't sell combi ovens, but you can look at a combi oven and the speed and the efficiency and the multi-use that a combi oven can, can use today uh, because our labor force is becoming very unreliable. Uh, you know, we're, we're paying people to stay home. It's more attractive than coming to work at a restaurant that ends but I just have a feeling my thoughts are their personal thoughts and I could be way off but as a young kid that I may be able to go work at Amazon and put a pair of earbuds in and pick my hours and get paid more money than working a restaurant it's twofold Uh, the restaurants aren't the best place in the world to work I loved them I grew up in them I worked at Crock and Block and Keg, and uh, that's where I think I got my passion for the whole process of feeding people. Uh, but uh, you know, what's happening is that uh, you know, these frustrated owners that can't get laborers and say, well, how can I do this better? How can I be more efficient without relying on? Another prime example is that is when Tim Hortons uh, years ago went to their freezer program. They used to have bakers in at four o'clock in the morning on uh, Saturday and Sunday mornings to start the baking of their donuts and all their stuff. The franchisees, some of the franchisees that I talked to, that was a phone-in call Saturday morning. I'm sick. I can't get in. Well, you probably just got in from the bar. Guess who's the new uh, baker? You are. Tim Hortons made a whole paradigm shift and put freezers in every Tim Hortons across the country to go on their bar bake program. It was a big, big shift. And uh, again, it was relying on labor. So one of the new lines that we represent is a automated coffee system called RoboJo. It's a mm-hmm. robot bought kiosk that has been developed in Germany and a group that I'm with have uh, got North American distribution rights for it. The first one just got to Ohio and is going into a hospital in Ohio. You know, the, the company down there that's bringing it in has done some great marketing. You know, they've uh, run an airport uh, to eight o'clock at night and all the food services shut down in the airport. Well, guess what? A Robo Joe a coffee kiosk is never shut down. It's open 24-7. So if you, you want a coffee before your uh, late night flight, you don't have to man it. You just have to have someone, you know, clean it, fill it, and do that uh, certain times during the day. But you don't have to rely on the labor. You rely on a robot to do the work for you. And uh, it's a sad state in a way because I've seen robotics even advanced into flipping burgers. Uh, there's robotic pizza machines, kiosks that are coming out on the uh-huh. market. I, I agree. There's, you know, there's this always a feeling of, you know, are we automating ourselves out of certain cultures that, you know, we've enjoyed maybe in the past, but I, I think also there's opportunities as sort of these, if you will, lower skilled jobs that are more traditionally entry-level jobs that people want to grow up through. Essentially people are ending up starting at higher levels. So hopefully some of that will be realized and it it is delivering more job satisfaction. But in addition to this, um, I think what we've seen also is, 
and hearing about on this program, I would say significant shifts in how restaurants are using their infrastructure. Of course, traditionally, a restaurant sets up, they equip themselves for the purpose of serving guests that are coming into their restaurant. Obviously, that was a little bit of a problem over the last couple of years. And it seems like it has accelerated a um, diversification, if you will, of how that infrastructure is being utilized. And I'm curious to hear your experiences on this of restaurant equipment, the staff, et cetera, not just being used for satisfying customers that are sitting down in the restaurant, but obviously the takeout orders that have increased dramatically, but also shifting entire production plans. I've heard of cases where you know a restaurant might have been a lunch and dinner restaurant. So in other words, their equipment's utilized half of the half of the 24-hour day, and they started using the morning to produce food that's going to be sent for catering, for example, in afternoons. What have you seen in this area? Well, I think you've hit on a lot of different points that are are all happening. I think the restaurants out of all of this get hit the hardest. And I know there's other people out there that'll say, well, you know, hairdressers didn't get to do this. And, and I understand that restaurants consistently have to spend the most money to be the safest places out there. I, I look at, I'd heard a stat one time that an average restaurant tour has paid $200,000 out of their pocket just to keep up with the new mandates for all this stuff. And where that leads me to is that you're 100% right. People have shifted to just opening up a kitchen, preparing uh, stuff during the day just to get ready for night or having a drive through. I personally want to totally support those restaurants. By the time I get that food home, it's not where I want it to be as far as temperature and mm. look and everything else. And I, I hate it. So uh, I hate personally hate it because I love going and dining in. Um, but they've had to shift and they've also had to do things like create ghost kitchens. Ghost kitchens is a concept of running through North America where someone can go into that spot and create exactly what you've just said, a, uh, a dynamic where uh, there's a central phone call and there's a kitchen that they can get out to a lot of different people. They're uh, Walmart just signed an agreement with ghost kitchens to get rid of a lot of McDonald's and now have four or five concepts inside of Walmart. Uh, yeah, so now you can have a pizza. Now you can have a Cinnabon in there that throws out all those great smelling cinnamon buns. So everyone's pivoting. Uh, I hope traditional dining is is not been affected. I, I, I My hopes were extremely high in November. It was my daughter's birthday. We we went to the keg and uh, it was jammed all to see. It was, uh, I love the ambiance of a full restaurant. Um, but again, now that keg is closed and yeah, they've had to pivot back to just opening up that kitchen, preparing during the day to get ready for those meals at night and crank out food as fast as a phone or, a, or an internet order comes in. All the delivery people and everything else. Uh, it's, but restaurant tours adapt very quickly. They, yeah. they do whatever they do. Well, they have to because uh, the money must flow um, or else those, those businesses close down and many of them have. But, you know, I think especially in this increasingly fast-paced world where technology is changing all the time, people sometimes, in my opinion, have a perception that, well, the basic human nature is going to change. We're just not going to go to restaurants anymore. So, you know, this has been going on for millennia. And 
yes, there are disruptive forces out there, but people want to socialize, people want to get together. So I suspect there are certainly um, a bit of some turns in the road, if you will, but people are still going to want to socialize. Like you said, you saw this very famous restaurant, good restaurant here in Canada, actually in North, across North America, two, three months ago, packed to the gills, if you will, because that's what people want to do. But so it's temporary um, issues of chasing them away. Let's turn back to another part of the sustainability side that you started touching on earlier as related to energy, I would say more efficient use of food materials, upcycling, et cetera. My understanding is you also have products that are illustrating some of the trends that are happening in the food space today based on the equipment that's being used for all these sustainability activities. Yeah, we have a, uh, a couple of product lines that are new to us. Um, this is why we hate when the restaurant show in Toronto gets uh, canceled because we're trying to get Market these products. Uh, we think we do pretty good marketing through social media and things. But yeah, we've uh, purchased a company uh, for the rights for Canada to uh, supply uh, filters for frying systems. We mm. can prove any restaurateur uh, who does frying. A jib of oil used to be about $22 and they can be as high as $75 now since COVID's hit. A lot of restaurants, believe it or not, just throw out their oil. They don't test it. They don't, they don't have a process. So uh, this company, uh, we can test your oil. We can do testing. We can show how many more days they can get out of their oil, uh, which for some chains especially is a dramatic cost savings. But it's a very slow process. Uh, we have some big chains that are in testing right now, and they seem to be very excited about that thought process because frying is a big part of a lot of restaurants. Every, every new chicken sandwich that you've seen advertised on TV from all these great chains create a lot of oil and create a lot of uh, oil just burns. It burns 20. As long as that fryer is on, all you're doing is burning oil and burning the product that comes in there. So the cleaner you can keep it, the better quality consistency you can have. So yeah, it's called Filter Corp. It's a uh, fantastic product, European product that gets uh, shipped into us from overseas. And uh, we're shipping out skids of it every day out of our warehouse. So it's catching on and uh, uh, we're saving people a lot of money. That's you know, a really interesting um, shift in activity. I, I think you know, I've had the opportunity to be around the world and you see a lot of recycling of restaurant oil in, in all sorts of interesting ways. What do you see as, I guess, currently, and this is a, frankly, it's a major contributor to sustainability as well, reusing, extending the use of oil. What do you see as some of the key barriers that sounds like leading to a bit of a slow adoption for this and coupled with the key pull for um, actually adopting it. Obviously, there's the economic side. Maybe that's that is all it takes. Well, I just I just think that the new uh, it, there's skepticism first of all, but we can prove that in a two week test we can prove to them very easily. But I also think that restaurant tours and chain accounts right now are just so far behind looking at new things to do because they're trying to keep those restaurants open. Thought process of a new process coming in is just holding them back a little bit where, you know, like, again, restaurants in Toronto are shut down until minimum January 26, completely for in-store. Well, an operator may not want to see you perform a test in there because they're so busy doing what they've had to do to readjust to get their takeout ready for that. So mm -hmm. uh, there's skeptics. 
in the product, but uh, we've been able to prove to, uh, we have a lot of new customers on this product because oil is out of control. And as far as the recycle part also, these pads are biodegradable and customers are still using that oil, like a trend from Europe. They've been using their oil and they change that to biodiesel for many, many years. In Europe, they do it with their garbage, their oil, and we're catching on to that trend. When I worked back in the restaurant industry, you just threw it into a big bucket and it was garbage and it was, mm. it was scary. I remember carrying hot buckets of oil out back and uh, today that oil is uh, cooled and put into holding stations where trucks come and take it and they actually pay for oil now. Mm-hmm. So there's a recycling program with the whole thing and we're just part of that process. It sounds like what you've seen, uh, again, on the back end of the restaurant um, equipment space is over a period of decades, not only has oil that would have gone after, if you will, a single use straight in the garbage, that oil now is being extended based on the products that you're able to, the life cycle of that product being extended based on the products that you are able to provide. But also it's not going to the landfill anymore. It's um, going to be used as biodiesel. There, I don't know uh, the back end use of it. I don't know if we're at a biodiesel point, but uh, it is recycled for whatever uh, it's being repurposed for. I'm not 100% sure on right. that. But I know that it used to cost money to take away oil. And now I believe that is a has turned around to be a profit center for the end user. And again, our pad is just a process. So if you were throwing out your oil every three days, we believe we can get five or six days out of oil. And that is a lot of money when you're paying that much money Mm -hmm. a jib of oil because you're always topping up you're always adding more and some people think that that's the process where we we can help in a better product so a lot of what you're doing and all this equipment you're installing is absolutely uh, paving the way to the future and showing the trends in the food space and we've been talking a lot about that Uh, unfortunately some of your interactions like you described are kind of being slowed because trade shows etc are still being either canceled delayed But what do you see going forward in, let's say, the restaurant space in terms of trends that maybe make for meaningfully different experiences for consumers over the next two to five years um, based on the infrastructure um, demand that you're seeing? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. You know, I'm I'm my mind goes to, you know, again, we work with a lot of business and industry uh, and I'll come back to that main question. But in the business and industry sector, we've built cafeterias in the last two years that have sat dormant for two years. Are people going to go back to offices and use cafeterias? Uh, Are those spaces going to be something moving forward? When COVID first hit, uh, we saw a a sneeze guard, breath guard line thinking, oh my God, no one's going to go do self-serve. You're not going to need sneeze guards anymore. I, I don't see, I, and, I know, and those were all really great conversations as uh, what does the future of food service look like that way? And a consultant may have a better grasp on that, a food service consultant, but I didn't agree that that would change that much. I believe we will go back. How are universities going to feed people? How are large venues going to, I don't see it changing a lot, except maybe some more robotics introduced. I believe that uh, there's a fantastic restaurant in Toronto that got uh, called Giancarlo's that was open for so many years and they closed down. They're gone. But I fully believe that they're ready 
to go again if uh and and i don't know if a winning formula like they were doing would change anything it was old school italian restaurant with great wine i don't know how many changes that would be to uh their kitchens uh, again mm-hmm. i believe i maybe different products there like combi ovens uh you know things that will help them be faster and better with less labor that's mm-hmm. the only i i think that's will still look like restaurants when we get back to it. Well, it sounds like also one of the indicators of where things are going is is simply, you know, the types of products that you're representing, automated equipment that's coming in that probably when you got into this business a few decades ago, you probably wouldn't have imagined a fully automated coffee kiosk or some of the highly automated vegetable chopping systems out there. Um, do, Do you see that continuing with the kind of the projections of what these suppliers are going to be providing in the future? Yeah, I think so. And even when you talk about defat fryers, again, just going back to that, even without our pads, uh, more people are shifting to, and they're going to, those just will help them save money alone. Our pad helps them save more, but I mean, there's a big shift for chains because they know how much labor is involved in a kid emptying a fryer manually and Mm. doing it. So yeah, I believe that the technology will keep going. Technology used to be a bad word in a kitchen because kids would always break it or things wouldn't be water. The technology today is so much stronger. You know, anything that has a digital display is it's just much better than it was. It can handle heat and uh, it's it's not as prone to water and all those different things that used to happen in kitchens where anything technological like that you, you just used to break and then to replace a circuit board on something like that three thousand dollars and mm-hmm. now technology iPad uh, usage uh, things like that I, I'll give I sell ventilation systems with demand control and it's a mini iPad that's in there that's the uh, central processor for everything now where that that control panel, I would tell you, when we started off was probably $25,000, and we can get that down to $7,000 with all the controls now. So those technological costs, yeah, the, the, the technology of things has come down because it's being used more, and we're just way smarter with it. Mm-hmm. Do you see, you know, there's one side is the automation, meaning that somebody can be at a control panel, a glass panel, and be pressing buttons and making something happen versus turning a physical knob to turn the gas on or something like that. Do you see interconnectivity of some of this equipment also that is actually giving feedback either to the owner or even the manufacturer to see the performance of that equipment? Absolutely. There's the the technologies there on a lot of appliances. That's what our ventilation systems do. They they'll let the uh, there's actually a physical screen there. I'll tell you that it's it's called demand control just for ventilation. And when you're not busy, it's supposed to slow everything down, bring all the power for everything, and if if you are using the power, then there's something wrong in the process and an owner can adjust accordingly. There's things like that with combi ovens that have technology in them now that actually speak to all the other combi ovens on different floors. You know, uh, we sell toasters from Hacko that, you know, chains use and they, uh, it's a, if they change it, if they add a new product, uh, a new bun or something like that, it's sending them an email to upload to their computer through a USB port. 
Um, there's a whole bunch of activity in talking. Refrigeration now, uh, uh, there, we, we were selling temperature uh, monitoring systems. Uh, for example, the like let's just look at Scotiabank Centre in Toronto. The code is with the restaurants is that you have to record temperatures every hour. So someone on Christmas Day, in theory, if you have food in that freezer or cooler, you're supposed to go in there and say, yes, check the temperature, everything's great. Well, now there's temperature monitoring, monitoring things that if someone left the door open the day before, it can send someone a text to say, hey, the door is open mm -hmm. and the temperature's right. This is a problem. So now you don't have to have the labor on site because there's things speaking to you through your mobile device now. On this program, we've seen a lot of progress and talk to people using the technology, essentially bringing this decentralized world to us through, if you will, the viewer of the food space and how supply chains are becoming more efficient, especially for small producers. And it sounds like what you're actually implementing on the prep side, you know, the equipment that's doing all of that is allowing all these individual pieces of equipment to be somewhat smart in of themselves and delivering that back into the process and that so that the owners can be more efficient in what they're doing. And this is going to help with all sorts of sustainability measures and extending life of food, use of food, um, upcycling of food. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I believe it to be, excuse me, and I think that uh, uh, strong operators that are uh, good operators and understand all that, and I, I think that that's what owner operators have to be better at in the future, that the cheapest product isn't always the best solution, uh, but, in, in, you know, we've it, there's a race to the bottom on selling goods out there, but I think owners need to understand the features and benefits. And that said, owners are a lot more smarter. Uh, that's why trade shows have been affected dramatically too. Mm. People do their research on an appliance. Uh, I used to work a show and someone, you know, when I worked for Garland back in the day and they say, well, how does this work? How does this work? Today, they come in and tell me how things work because <laughs> if you, I sell, uh, you know, our, you know, our, our HACO catalog, for example, has, you know, probably 20,000 different things that it can do with the uh, mix and matching controls and everything. You'll have people do their research on exactly what they want. Mm. So our company has been uh, are very strong in learning as much as that as possible and trying to guide end users to say, uh, you know, for example, a heat strip that keeps plates warm. Uh, you know, a lot of people will just go for the cheapest heat strip that just turns on. Uh, but, you know, I would recommend that, you know, you, you have something that has a, a control that you can Turn that down when you're not busy. Turn it up right. when you need more. That gives you flexibility. It'll actually save you money in your operational costs. Just little things like that. I think uh, an end user has to be just more aware of what the equipment can do for them. Well, I think this is a really great discussion in helping our list, our viewers to really see that, you know, this food space, it's not all about the delicious food you get at the end of the day or the amazing smallholder farmers who are bringing food to us, but this background infrastructure that, that you're delivering, that you're you know, really maintaining for restaurants and, and large kitchens is really showing the way forward as well. And that technology and automation has quietly crept into this field where it's, it sounds like it's now a driver in the products that you're selling. Yeah, I, I believe it is. Um, there's so many different segments and, you know, uh, NAFM, the North America food equipment manufacturers, they gauge all that stuff too. Um, you know, merchandising, we sell merchandisers. Merchandising is a big thing. Peeling display cases, people that, things that catch people's eyes. Uh, we're a very expensive uh, merchandiser. 
And we lose orders a lot because people have sticker shock when they see it. But when they understand the customer base of who you why they use it, and you have that chance to sit in front of the customer and explain it. I'm not saying we get a lot, of, we get a lot of orders that people just walk away from because it's it's a it's an expensive product, but that catches a customer's eye. Blast chilling is a big market segment. Mafum keep track of all these things that are trending in a big way. Blast they're saving labor, they're um, saving the freshness of food, taking out all the uh, bacteria out of things. There's just so many different facets to what right. we do. And there's a million people trying to get to that restaurant tour and tell them they got the best product that's out there too. Well, it's, it's an excellent insight as to how technology is really both supporting and being driven by the sustainability demands of restaurants and, and not just for say upcycling oil, for example, or extending the life, but really the sustainability of their workers and, and how those workers are, you know, compensated and their satisfaction in a job. And really interesting for, I, th I think, all of our listeners to understand that and, and know why it's important in this space. Well, I, I want to thank you very much for being with us today, Danny. Um, again, the owner and principal of Collis Group, um, providing amazing equipment to restaurants and professional kitchens across North America. Thanks again for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 